1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Miriam Powell about her recently published biography of Cesar Chavez, entitled The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, published by Bloomsbury Press in 2014. Miriam Powell is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and reporter who spent 25 Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today we will be talking to Miriam Powell about her recently published biography of Cesar Chavez, entitled The Crusades of Cesar Chavez, published by Bloomsbury Press in 2014. Miriam Powell is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and reporter who spent 25 years working for Newsday and the Los Angeles Times. Her first book, The Union of Their Dreams... Power, Hope, and Struggle in Cesar Chavez's Farm Worker Movement, published by Bloomsbury Press in 2009, was named a Los Angeles Times favorite book and also selected um, by the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the best books of 2009. Miriam has also received a number of fellowships to support her work, including an award from the National Endowment for the Humanities for this project, The Crusades of Cesar Chavez. Miriam Powell, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you very much. Um, as we've talked earlier, I'm super excited to have you. This is a great book, and uh, I'm definitely looking forward to our conversation today. And I'm wondering if you could just... Great, so much. Yeah, great. I was wondering if you could just begin by saying a few words about yourself. You know, tell us uh, maybe about where you're from, where you were born, where you went to school, things like that. <laughs> sure. Have you go um, way back in time? I am from... I'm sorry? Have you go way back in time, maybe?
2: <laughs> okay, I go way back in time, right. So Okay, so I am from New York, and actually a... Transplant to California, like so many Californians, um, it's my adopted home. Uh, I grew up in New York. I was born on Long Island. I grew up in New York. I went to Harvard College and graduated with a degree in classics. Not necessarily the most practical um, application, but <laughs> a good a good general base for knowledge, and um, went right into journalism after school. And my, I worked first at the um, Albany Times Union was my first job. And then I worked at Newsday on Long Island. For um, 19 years, wow. In various capacities, yeah. I was um, when I left, it was sort of I had to either leave or I was going to be there for life. So, um, but you know, I, I did start when I was very young. So, right. um, I I um, uh, was a reporter. I covered um, all. I went back to Albany as the Albany bureau chief for Newsday and covered the first four years or so of Mario Cuomo's governorship which was an exciting time. And uh, and then I became an editor and supervised a lot of, ultimately became the assistant managing editor for Long Island. So I was supervising local coverage and um, including the crash of TWA Flight 800 in 1996. And that was the story for which we won the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. Um. Um, And then in 2000, I moved to California to work at the Los Angeles Times, which was then a sister paper of Newsday. We were both owned by, um, first the Mirror Corp and then the Chicago Tribune,
0: Uh
2: uh, the Tribune Company. And so I came to California as an editor, as the natural editor at the LA Times. Okay. And... Um, you know, found California. I think that I think New Yorkers who come here some either never like it or like it immediately. And um, <laughs> I found it, to be, you know, it is a wonderful, fascinating place. And particularly, um, you know, having lived in New York City for many years, Los Angeles was a somewhat a city that was equally or more exciting and right. fascinating. Um, you know, in a everything was horizontal instead of vertical, but. Um, uh, so I got very kind of interested in California as a place, and in and ultimately in the history of California. Um, but in two thousand and five, two thousand no I'm getting confused. In two thousand and four, I um, switched from editing to reporting, and I became a project reporter, and was looking for a beat to cover because I I believe that. Best reporting, or at least the kind of reporting that I like to do the best, is is when you really, um, uh, you know, amass an expertise in a subject and can write about it with that degree of sort of authority and understanding. And so I wanted to have a deed. And I spent some time in Sacramento, um, because of my sort of longstanding interest in state government also. And, uh, kind of stumbled on agriculture as an area that was. Is so important to the California economy and to the to the state and to, the, to its history, and nobody was really writing about it. And to me, it was a beat that um, combines everything. It's sort of it's there's enormous amounts of money involved. There are a lot of public policy issues
0: right, right. and
2: political things, but there are also real people at the end and 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 in between, <laughs> and and so. So I thought it sort of, to me, was an intersection of of, of politics and policy and people that really appealed to me. And so I sort of then I really didn't know very much about agriculture, although New York is also a, a major agricultural state. But right. and so I began to sort of go around and learn about it and um, started to work on a story about pesticides. And then someone told me that there were farm workers living kind of in caves in San Diego in the hills, in the canyons in San Diego without any, um, you know, just kind of living in shacks that they built. Um, and I thought, you know, that was kind of incredible that in the 21st century, people were living that way and in a place like San Diego. And um, so I went down there to see what was going on and um, began to spend time uh, in the camps and um, and then sort of, because I'm a baby boomer who grew up boycotting grapes and kind of had a sense that the the, the United which is probably for many listeners um, of a certain age that's what people know about Caesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers if they know anything anymore is that you know we boycotted grapes kind of right, you know, right. ideas. I was a kid but that was the, eating the grapes and I still run into people today who say is it okay to eat grapes now and things like that and so um, I kind of was like oh I'll call the United Farm Workers and see you know they must be working on all this, And everyone that I talked to kind of said, "Well, the UFW really isn't in the fields anymore, and they haven't been for a long time." And right. so right. I thought, well, that's really interesting because that was very counter to the idea that I and many many people had and to some degree still have of the of the UFW. And so I began to report on that. And that led me ultimately to spend a year on a project that became a four-part series in the LA Times in early 2006 that was about the United Farm Workers and what had become of it and how it had moved away from... Um, really being in the field and being forced or even being known to farm workers today and and that series dealt to some degree with what the conditions were today and sort of contrasted that with the activities of the UFW but in the course of doing that I went to talk to people who had been involved in the movement and in the union in its heyday in the late 60s and throughout the 1970s because many of these people are still around and so I thought that I was talking to them just to put into context the present and to try to understand understand for myself, you know, how, how this iconic union had um, sort of strayed so far from its original mission. And right. in talking to these people, kind of found this fascinating story of what had happened in the late 70s and early 80s and this sort of internal... Um, Deliberations within the union about what the direction would be and became kind of convinced that there was so much that had happened during that time period that was really directly relevant to explaining the present that we did something really unusual as a newspaper which was to do an entire day story about the just what happened between 1977 and 1981 wow. and so that was kind of my introduction to beginning to learn to be a historian um, I spent time in the archives at Maine State University which is the official repository of the UFW um, archives and um, so I sort of had was, that was my first exposure to all to the wealth of material that is in, that is available and the incredible resources that are available to tell the history and um, Obviously, I was doing that as a journalist initially, but um, became so fascinated by it that I left the paper and left journalism um, <laughs> and um, decided, and, and because I wanted to write this book, that was my first book, which you mentioned, "The Union of Their Dreams," and that is really a narrative history of the movement because I sort of met people, the people who I met who had been involved in the in the union at the time, and it's in it's. Day, right. were just this incredible collection of really passionate, committed activists who um, are still, most of them, you know, very active in different causes, but who had been so convinced that they were on the verge of um, establishing a sustainable labor union for farm workers And here I come along, you know, 30 years later, asking, well, what happened? What went wrong? And people are just haunted by what had happened and why they had not succeeded and still wrestling with these questions and most of them had never talked about it because part of the ethos of the movement was sort of that you don't, you know, talk about these things in public. Um, And I I think that my timing was good in the sense that people sort of said, well, it's history now, you know, we should talk about it. Um, And then ultimately that spurred some interesting discussions about, you know, when do you talk about things and what is, is there a reason not to or, or should, you know, was it a mistake not to talk about things? Right. right. um, so I wrote the first book and it's a a story told through eight characters who were principal players in the struggle in one way or another not necessarily most important people but a range of um, farm workers lawyers students who came together a minister um, who who sort of represented in some ways the worlds that came together at that point in time that contributed to the success of the United Farm Workers Um, and and So it sort of is the rise and fall seen through their eyes, and Cesar Chavez is an important player in that book. But he's on stage; he's not center stage. And right, so right. I write about him, and you see him um, through their eyes, you know, and, and see what what the, you see his decisions as mirrored through through their responses. And mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I was done with writing about farm workers and Susan <laughs> <habit. laughs> And And then people began to say to me, you know, you should write a biography because there isn't one.
0: Right.
2: And which was kind of remarkable I and mean, something. He died in
0: 1993.
2: And, mm-hmm. um, so we're talking about, you know, 2010 when I started thinking yeah. about this. And... Um, you know by then, I had spent five or six years kind of immersed in the subject, so I did kind of have a running start and people were saying um, you know you understand the I bad when you 're in a good position you 're the person who can, can could do this and I really didn 't want to do it initially, and I think i was hesitant for um, for a lot of the reasons that there hasn't been a biography until now, which right. is that people who knew about Cesar Chavez kind of knew that there was, it was a complicated story. He's a complicated person. He's a heroic figure who, like all heroes, has strengths and weaknesses and um, you know successes and failures and flaws, and people didn't want to do that. There was a, a sense of shying away from it. Um, people even sort of warned you and know, kind of said to me, are you prepared for for the, for the flack and so forth, in, in the sense that um, there was an assumption, which I think was an erroneous assumption, as it turns out, that if you write anything critical about Cesar Chavez, you will upset, you know, quote unquote, the Latino community, whatever mm-hmm. that right. means. Which right. But, <laughs> but um, so, so I was kind of, you know, I sort of, why should I be the one to tarnish the preeminent Latino
0: hero of this?
2: Tree. I, I didn't particularly want to do that either. And then the more that I thought about it and people talked to me, um, it, it became so clear to me that, first of all, um, people don't know who Cesar Chavez is. Mm -hmm. I think the Mm -hmm. level of ignorance today is, you know, I mean, I'm even continuing to be surprised by it, even though I know this, but it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to people in Berkeley or Salinas or New York, you know, it's kind of like with the guy in Venezuela. I mean, there really is like a level of (laughs) ignorance that, um, that, that is very, very high. And then the people who know about him kind of know he had something to do with the farm workers and not a whole lot more. And, you know, he's, his methods and his, his successes and his um, strategies and so on are, are really remarkable and his story is remarkable and he's right. I mean, he is a heroic figure who should be remembered and um, so ultimately I, kind of, I became convinced that it, it was the lack of any serious scholarship about him mm-hmm. that was contributing to the fact that people didn't know who he was. I mean, he doesn't get taught because there's not really much to teach you know, there's um, the California curriculum about him is sort of like a little, you know, it's almost like a joke. I mean, he's a name on yeah. schools, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, anyway, so that's why, like, so, so, so it was like, okay, I, this is worth dealing and I should do it.
1: No, that, I mean, that's, you bring up such a good point about. Um, you know, the lack of knowledge about Cesar Chavez that's out there. And, um, I mean, you mentioned the, the school curriculum. I mean, I have a, a couple daughters that are in elementary school, and and I've been very interested to see what their textbooks say. And, and it is very sparse. I mean, it's it's just basically he was a um, – they kind of put him in line with, you know, Martin Luther King or other type of, you know, movement-type figures mm-hmm. and um, talk about how he helped, you know, farm workers. And, you know, they may read a little bit of a book or they may, you know, make a little picture or something. I mean, and I'm sure – I'm, I'm glossing over a lot, but I mean, I've read through the, the social sciences, you know, section on him and it, and it is very thin. And, you know, I can even connect that, you know, to the students that I teach, you know, um, mm-hmm. at the university level. And, you know, when they when we assign your book, you know, the union of their dreams and, and they read that uh, a lot of the comments, you know, that you know come from our discussion about the book are, wow. You know, I grew up in I mean, I have students say I grew up in Fresno. You know, I grew up in right. Salinas. I grew up right next to these hounds where these great battles went and they say the same thing you know oh there's a school named after him and you know or this or that and uh, so they're familiar with his name but really not about you know the person or, um, you know, his own background, how he came to, you know, getting involved in, in, uh, in, in, you know, forming a union and, and kind of forming a poor people's movement. I mean, to, to a lot of the narratives about him, you know, particularly those like, again, at the, the K through 12 education curriculum, it's almost as if, you know, Chavez emerges out of whole cloth, you know, just, right, just, right. here he is, you know, he's, uh, like so many of our, you know, I think, um, you know, key, you know, historical figures, it's little context is put on, who the person was and how they got to where they were, which is what I think Uh, Union of the Dreams is great at doing that, Uh, you know, providing that that much more holistic picture from the different participants, so you're able to see how he looked through, you know, the eyes of other people, you know, who are very close to him. And then, you know, this biography, which goes even, you know, a step further, you know.
2: And that's right, I mean, that's exactly sort of what I was trying to do in both books, I mean as you see know, sort of one, one seeing what it 's like to be a participant in a movement I mean I think they're also you know, he touches on so many issues that are important for and relevant and meaningful to people who are interested in any sort of progressive action, social action you know the 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 uh, i 've been talking about him recently to labor unions because labor unions are sort of struggling now with working in a very adverse political and, and legal climate. And one of the things about Cesar Chavez was that he achieved his greatest successes when he did not have really any... when he was working against the system to some degree. Right. And, right. Um, and and people don't realize that either. So there's sort of, I mean, there's sort of a lot of... Just even tactical things about what he did and how he did it that are, are enormously relevant today. Um, it was for me the difference in the two books was interesting because I, um, you know, you talk about how he kind of sprung. I mean, I, and I think that's right. I mean, there's this sort of. I mean, there's a mythology, and he helps to create the mythology about right. himself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and and did that for a reason. And, you know, organizers, if you talk to great union organizers today or any kind of organizers, you know, they do that too. I mean, it's all about telling a story and you tell mm-hmm. the story and you embellish the story a little bit here and there because it's a better story and it helps to make your point. Right, and, right. and he did that and, and and so I mean one of the things that I tried to do in the biography was to separate out the stories that he told from the from the facts because the stories that become how he's I mean the few books that are written, many of them sort of contain you know, just take what he said at face value. And the thing that was incredible to me is that he um, you know, he had a sense of his own history. So, I mean, right. I referred earlier to the archives, but he saved you know, not only documents, but tape records that he taped for a period between about 69 and the early 80s. He made hundreds. He taped all of the executive board meetings of the union, which lasted for hours and hours. And he taped conferences and classes that he taught and phone conversations and meetings and so on. And um, so he preserved this really great, record that is just sort of a historian or a biographer's dream. right? Yeah. Um, and much of it country, and, and so to me it was like here he was this guy who kind of creates his own mythology and uses that, but understands ultimately because he is a self-taught student of history and read biographies of great and powerful men, I think he understood that ultimately his place in history was going to rely on telling the real story, not this sort of, you know, children's book version.
1: Right, you know, and I'm glad you're talking about it, because that's something that struck me, as I was telling you, you know, reading, you know, going through this the second time, I mean, I read it the first time when it first came out, um, which I was, you know, very excited to do, and then preparing for this interview, going through it again, it, you know, how you mentioned how he was both, you know, you know, probably the, the, the chief driver in, in the creation of his, you know, image, or, you know, a lot of the mythology that goes behind him, but at the same time, I mean, he left the scaffolding, right, to kind of break that down. Right, um, and and that just fascinated me. Uh, so maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about. You mentioned the, the you know some of the sources, you know, the Wayne State uh, recordings. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about the sources and um, that you use to form, uh, you know, the narrative, and uh, you know, you know, just the, all the pieces of evidence that that you know were left behind that has allowed you to tell this, this story more fully. You know that even as you say, you know, kind of you know goes back and and recasts you know the the narrative and the image that that he wanted to establish for himself.
2: Sure. Um, you know that. I mean, I'll start with the tapes, which are just you know they're only a piece of it, but I think they're such an important piece because you know, I, I sort of estimated that I listened to fifteen hundred hours, and I'm probably conservative. Wow. You know, over the course of. Over you know six seven eight years whatever it was I did this and and I still I mean I find the tapes just utterly fascinating because they're um, you know as a like as a journalist when I, I mean when I sort of transitioned from journalism to being a historian as a journalist you used to you see things yourself and you write about mostly what you see in front of you or people that you interview and then as a historian you're recreating. Events that you didn't witness, or, you know, and people you do not. I never met Caesar Chavez. I never, you know, wasn't around in that time. I and so you have to, you know, it's a different challenge. And yet, on the other hand, you have access to this information that as a reporter you would never have. So, you know, you're in the room for 50 hours when there are, the UFW board is having these incredible debates and fights and screaming matches and, I you know, know, telling jokes and just, it's the whole you're just a fly on the wall seeing all of this and so um, you know I found that to be just invaluable as a resource in terms of of understanding the man and the times and and also in writing because it allows you to to quote dialogue which is pretty incredible Um, and, and to see Chavez in the you again, I mean, he would even say, for example, you know, let's, we're going to stop now and we're all going to tell stories into the tape recorder. So it's sort of just that sense of history. You know, I want everyone to talk, to tell the story of how they came to the union and then they'd go around the room right. and they would do that. And um, so, so that's pretty incredible. And then you know, I sometimes think about how I kind of feel sorry for historians of the future who will be looking at flash drives and email things like right. that. Yeah, because,
0: yeah.
2: Uh-huh. Because, right? Because to certain, like you know, everything. I mean, this was pre like it was just the beginning of fax machines, and so like everything was written in triplicate on all things, exactly. and there was all this hander and stuff, and and to go through all of that was um, was was pretty great. And and so you know, he was very. I mean, from the time that that the it was really Walter Ruther. Another person no one's heard of anymore, who was um, the president of the United Auto Workers at a time of its great strength in the in the fifties and six in, in the early nineteen sixties, and and one of the very key support early supporters of Chavez and the farm farmworkers, um, Ruther had just basically sort of endowed the what is now the Walter Ruther Labor Library at Wayne State University, and there was an, a young archivist named Phil Mason who had decided to sort of try to set up a labor library and got Ruther to, to do this and they were just, it was just in its early stages and in 1967 Ruther sent Phil Mason to Delano which he had never heard of and to see Cesar Chavez who he also never heard of and said you know history is being made in California and you need to make an arrangement with him to preserve that history and so Mason comes in 1967 and is presented at the Friday night meeting of the UFW with this proposal to you know, name the the Wayne State as the repository, and from then on, you know, everything gets saved. And, wow! Um, it's um, so we so that was just kind of a a really great and about great what, record. And there,
1: what year was uh, that when he started when they started recording all these you know conversations? He
2: starts the, the I mean, there's some there are a few recordings from '67, and then it accelerates in kind of '69, and then in some in the early. But then, in 1973, is when the UFW officially becomes an independent union under the AFL-CIO, as opposed to an organizing committee. So they then have quarterly meetings of the board um, and and conventions every two years. And all of those meetings from '73 through about '79, the meetings are all recorded. Huh. And they would meet for I mean, they talked. <laughs> they would meet for like days. and,
0: Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: So, um, so there's that, and then and then also just in between different things like training sessions um, for organizers or, or for farm workers and things like that. Um, I mean, there are many, many more tapes than I listen to. Um, they're reel-to-reel tapes, most of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but they're also there are like cassettes from the March to San to, to Sacramento in 1966, which was kind of a famous, you know, important pivotal point for for the Union when they marched um, from Delano to Sacramento in spring of 66, ending in the Capitol on Easter Sunday. Um, there are tapes from there um, of speeches and things like that. So there's just a whole kind of range of audio material. Um, there are also photographs are another really great resource for me, I find that Studying, and there are just so many pictures that people took along the way. And, you know, so many people became, national figures became attracted to the struggle, and, it, it, you know, it, it became the civil rights struggle of the of the moment. Um, right. It's really in 64, um, 65. And then earlier also, um, this is worth mentioning, I think, because people really don't know about this at all. So you, you had said about how often he just emerges full-blown, and I think that, that that's that's so true and also he sort of emerges in 65 as here's the union. People don't really talk about what happened before that and the fact that he had essentially a 10-year kind of apprenticeship where he learned to organize working for Fred Ross who's, uh, you know, also, an, a, a name. another known, well no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a biography of him coming out next year. Actually, exciting, yes. Right? Um, uh, and and so, in working for Ross, he was uh, on the payroll for most of the time of the um, industrial area foundation and Olinsky
1: mm-hmm.
2: and Olinsky, who people have heard of, and especially especially in recent years.
1: Yeah, impressive. Um, Post Obama, right? Yeah.
2: Al- yeah, exactly. Um, so Olinsky. Rec- as organizers to file reports like activity reports right? and not all of them survive but a whole lot do and so between like 54 and 62 there are tons of kind of sometimes daily sometimes weekly sometimes more sporadic reports that that Chavez wrote um you know he wasn't used to he went to school through eighth grade. He's not, you know, not a educated writer, and so you can actually kind of see his writing style develop, also, and the way he mimics Fred Ross in some sense. And mm-hmm. he would write these reports that would really just say what he did every day. I mean, and so it, 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 it's they're they're monotonous in there. In, in, I mean, there's a certain. Um, Monotony is not quite the word, but you know, there's a certain numbness of reading them and I drove Mrs. So and so to the, you know, social services office and I did this and whatever, but cumulatively, they're just a kind of remarkable portrait of the education of an organizer and wow. how he learns to do this kind of step-by-step step and you really see him evolve and you see what he gets frustrated with and why ultimately he decides to, to walk away from this you know, secure, relatively well-paying job as a community organizer in order to try to do this thing that you know has never been done before in front of a union for farm workers. So for me, in the second, you know, one of Things about writing the biography was going back and 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 you know, studying and 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 learning that piece of his history, which I knew some about, but not not that much. And um, and it, I think it's also sort of key to understanding a lot of the decisions that he makes later on.
1: Well, certainly, and I, that interests me. You said that, um, yeah, perhaps he. It maybe mimicked some of uh, Fred Ross's writing style, which I'm, I'm just a little familiar with. Some of Fred Ross's writings, I've, I've you know used a little bit of his manuscript materials, and so did So then, did he write you know very much conversationally, kind of like? fred ross did i mean i kind of noticed that when i was reading through some of fred ross's like i think he was writing a at one point an, an autobiography of himself or at least right. writing something like it and it was all very right. everything is like very conversational and just very vernacular right. you know um which kind of really gave me a sense uh, at least i was thinking right of, of who fred ross was and this is like really a great guy to be around and just loads of fun i mean did you get that sense from uh, caesar's writings as well
2: it, it's it's funny because yeah, and you know he writes in his when he leaves the CSO actually and and moves to Delano in '62, he writes letters to Fred a lot. It's sort of the, his most prolific period because he's you know really kind of scared and vulnerable and trying to do this crazy thing and really relying on Fred and missing Fred. And so, so, and in those letters, you'll see these touches. I mean, it's not, he doesn't adopt it wholesale. I, I agree with your characterization of, of Ross's style, but he'll put in a sort of like, well, Fred, you know this kind of like line that I just kind of makes me smile because it's kind of so reminiscent of you know the the sleeping giant is finally awakening and things like that. Right, um, right. So so I yeah I think that there are places where he kind of does that because you know, that's who he's been. Re- I mean it, that, that's sort of before he really develops his own um, style in some ways.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. You know as and as best as you can tell, I mean where. Where did Chavez gain this sense um, that he was making history? Can you tell, like, when did that start to kind of, you know, enter into his thinking? Um, and I mean, can you can you tell us perhaps where where you think that came from? I mean, just researching his his life and
2: you know, I mean, he by you know, I kind of like when you said that. Flash to the picture of the convention in September of 62, which is the first convention of what is then called the Farm Workers Association and, you know, ultimately becomes the UFW. Mm -hmm. And um, and I always, when I do talks, I show that picture and stuff because you can see um, there's, there's signs that say Viva La Causa, Right, And right. Um, it's also the meeting at which they unveil the symbol of the Black Eagle, you know. And so, right, right, yes. So there's this, there really is a lot at that moment that happens that, that is very, you know, it's really significant. And, and I, so I certainly think that by then he recognized that kind of, um, mm-hmm. but but I, you know, by then he had also read a lot of history. He certainly had, re- I mean, he understood how historic it would be to form a union for farm workers in California. He mm-hmm. certainly understood that because he was really familiar with all of the failed attempts for you know, decades. Right. Um, and and so I think that he, he certainly had a sense then that um, if he could do this, this was going to be, you know, he was making history.
1: Well, and certainly it was very personal to him too, right? I mean, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just his background, um, you know, having the, you know, the family farm and then, you know, his family loses the farm and they're kind of pushed into this, this life of, um, you know, migrant, you know, being migrant farm workers. I mean, he had a taste of that, uh, right? I mean, quite a bit. Uh, How much, you know, do you think that that played a role? How much did that motivate him? Mm -hmm.
2: Um, I, I think that's really, I think it was certainly very significant, and, and also the fact that, as you said, you know, he grows up, until he's 12, he's living on his land that was homesteaded by his grandfather, right. and his uncles are all living nearby, and so it's a very secure um, community of a family, essentially, and they're not well off, they don't have a lot of, Seat, but they have a farm and they have chickens and they have salt and they, you know, so even though there he grows, he's born in 27. And so even though he's growing up during the Depression, he's not um, experiencing that sort of, I mean, he, you know, he has a house, he has a life, he has a right, school, right. he has family. And, um, and so to just, and then how that wrenched away when you're 12 years old and suddenly be a migrant farm worker living in your car and tents and moving around all the time and getting up at five in the morning to, you know, go pick peas and all that stuff. Um, I think that that's, you know, it's hugely influential in his, in, in terms of propelling him later on to try to do something to change that. I mean, it's, it's that anger. I think he says at one point, you know, some of it's just about getting even and, and the racism that he encounters, too, is, is mm-hmm. that that's something that, you know, certainly there was racism in Arizona when he was growing up, but it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, he wasn't exposed to it in the same way until he comes to California.
0: Right.
2: And, um, and the, just the way the humiliate, the way that farm workers were just humiliated and treated and seeing his parents and his older sister be treated that way in the fields. Um, you know, certainly kind of both in an anger that fuels him and also allows him later on to tap into, I mean, he understands the anger of the people that he's trying to organize, right? So, right,
0: right.
2: Um, it's very powerful. And I do think that that's which, I mean, Luis Valdez is another person, um, you know, who later on becomes an important person in the farmworker struggle, but who also, um, uh, when he was at, when he was born, his family was living, they were um, sharecroppers on a farm that was owned by a Japanese family, and they lose the farm, the Japanese were interned, and his family is living in that, when he's a little kid, he's living in the house. Right. And then, you know, the war ends, I mean, I don't know what happened to the house, but, but he too sort of has this, I mean, so he has some experience as a little kid of having a normal life, you know, and then suddenly is thrown into its migrant thing. And it's like, so there's some, I think it helps to fuel the anger when you had something that was taken away as opposed to not having known that to begin with.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. I, um, I thought, I mean, you know, in, in reading the book, I mean, just so much of that experience of being forced into that, that situation and that, that type of work. I mean, you mentioned, I think in both books, you know, Union of Their Dreams and, and Crusades, um, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, psychological damage, just the work in the fields did. I mean, El Cortito, you right. know, the, the short handled hope, right. you know, I mean, just how demeaning, you know, that kind right. of was, right? To, to have to stoop over, you know, and, and that this was actually, right, a, uh, you know, an intended, you know, consequence of, of growers, mm-hmm. right. They allowed them, I, I believe you say to, to be able to tell, right. Who's working, right. Cause if you can see who's right. bent over, right. Someone's standing up, they're not working, right. you know, it's just that daily, you know, mill of, uh, you know, long hours and that type of work. I mean, it can, I can, I mean, I could definitely see To you. You mentioned, you know, giving him this fire and the ability, you know, having something taken away, you know, and then, you know, long come, you know Fred Ross, and you know initially who he's very you know suspicious of, but you know then starts to get a taste of of that something can be done. You know, right? Something can right. be done to improve these conditions, and and then he starts to see perhaps you know uh, that that there's a role he can play in this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so the book is organized into let's see, what's it? Five parts, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the they all seem to kind of hinge on these. You know, key moments or transitions in, in either Caesar's life or, you know, uh, the Union's, you know, development and evolution. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, uh, it seems to hinge on the lessons that he pulls out of the CSO, you know, right, right. And his organizing with Fred Ross and his, you know, the early influence of, you know, Father McDonald, who's who really instill or McDonald, sorry, who really instills, right, that love of like labor history and, and learning, you know, to him. Um could you say, what are, so what are some of those key lessons that he pulled from the CSO, right, that then kind of gave him this desire to, to start a farm workers' movement? I mean, as you, you mentioned, I mean, he, he saw that it wasn't available, but he also saw how probably improbable the task was, you know, right? I mean, he had, right. a, had a sense of the history. Um, and uh, so how, what did he learn from the CSO that, that kind of pushed him in that direction?
2: Well, I mean, there are all things he learned just as practically, you know, of how to organize. But I think that the sort of I think what you're getting at is the um, one of the lessons that he gets from the CSO is the idea of people taking power of empowering people who use their power for a goal that you don't share. And I mean, what happens in the CSO is that he is he's not in charge he's a staff person, he's working for them. So he has, he gets frustrated first of all by not being able to be the person who really makes the decisions and be in control. And then the CSO is really successful. You know, it. it I mean, the, the CSO was the was a community service organization. It was the first grassroots organization for Mexican Americans, and it did things like English classes and voter registration campaigns, and it you know, attempted to sort of empower people who had never felt they had any political power, right. and it, it, they, they succeed, and people begin to CSO members begin to move into the middle class mm-hmm. and adopt what, what Chavez considers to be middle-class values, which he, he just deplores, And, you know, he feels that people should live comfortably but not, um, you know, not aspire, as he would say, to, to buy a color television set. Right, and they right. ought to be continuing to invest their time and energy and resources in helping people who are still at the bottom of the rung. And um, they, you know, increasingly he is working with chapters who, you know, don't really care about that and um, he disinfuriates him and ultimately um, is is a lot of what drives him out of the CSO. And and what he takes from that, I think, is his sort of desire to really be in control to organize farm. Because the CSO, I mean, one of the sort of common pieces of mythology is Cesar Chavez left community service organization because they refused to organize farm workers.
0: Right, right. Mm -hmm.
2: And you can see that everywhere. And in fact... I thought that was the case, and I think I may have even said that in my first book because I hadn't actually gone back to the CSO <laughs> records. And when you when you go back, it turns out there were actually are minutes from the meeting where he quit, and in fact, the CSO adopts the four point plan organized farm workers, not necessarily in exactly the way he would have done it, but um, and there is a a wealthy benefactor who wants to give them $50,000, which they desperately need in order Uh to do all Uh of this, and, and he quits anyway. So he didn't quit because they didn't organize, wouldn't organize farm workers. He quit because he believed that to organize farm workers, he needed to do it his way. Right. Mm -hmm. And he needed to be the person who was in control and not be beholden to anyone who was giving him money or to, you know, not have to report to a board that he didn't get along with and so forth. Um, So, you know, a very key and important difference, and that is what he takes from that. It's like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. Uh, And, you know, that's one piece of it. And then the other is this lesson that sometimes when you empower people, you know, they want to use that power for things that you don't think are the right things, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes, you know, really important later on when the when the union in fact succeeds, and he believes that it is his mission to educate farm workers that what they should want, you know, not to make a lot more money, but to, um, you know, share the goals that he does about sort of organizing some amorphous union of poor people, um, and and he becomes, he finds himself in this position of trying to um, run a labor union when he doesn't really believe that the members should just want to make more money and be middle class. Right,
0: right. Um,
2: and, you know, so all of those tensions that he has in CFA, in fact, he says later on, I mean, when there begin to be these real internal struggles and anguish debates within the UFW, captured on tape, thank you, Cesar Johnson, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um he says i feel like i'm i feel like i 'm back where I was in the I s l i can't uh, i can't move i think right. he says something like i can't move you know right. I feel just like i was in the CSO. um so you know that's a big piece of what he takes out of the CSO is i don't ever want to be in that position again, right. I want to be you know telling other people what to do because I know better
1: yeah no, and that tension is is a fascinating one that that is just so interesting to read throughout, you know, the book, you know, the tension between, you know, his desire to, to lead the movement, um, you know, a union uh, in the direction that, that he wants, but also the the kind of veil or the, the guise that there's some form of democratic process in the union, right. you know, I mean, because he, from the CSO, he 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 takes some of the committee structure, uh, you know, and he takes the board, and he and it doesn't take it, but I mean, he uses those concepts, and, and they mm-hmm. emerge at least in later later iterations of the union. Um, however, they don't function right in that more, if you will, democratic way the way they did in the CSO, which. Which Chavez came to abhor because it, it didn't allow one, u- one person unilateral kind of decision making choice, right? And right. Uh, in the union, maybe this is, can, can drive to the next question. Um, you know, Chavez seemed to have those elements, those democratic elements, yet the union still. In at least some way from the top down, right? From the the the, the leadership bent to his will. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how he, about how he arranged that, you know, um, and how he kind of maybe dealt with that, that tension, you know, having it saying, you know, this is a this is a movement for farm workers, um, yet it it wasn't necessarily directed by farm workers, right? I mean, it was
2: right, and that becomes right. That becomes a, a big. I mean, I think there there are a couple different pieces to it. I mean, one, he certainly. Ne- there was a semblance of, there were people who believed there was. they had input. There are a few people to this day who were important leaders in the Union who think that everything was great in the beginning, and it was a democracy, and we all had a lot to say, and then something changed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the historical record supports that interpretation. You know, I think that in the beginning, people, you know, it was freewheeling, and he wasn't, Sort of the, the totally sainted national figure that he became later on, and, right. and you know, before the fast, it's, it's it's a different. When you talk to people who around in 64, 65, 66, 67, it was different. You know, it was a different environment. It was a different environment when they were in Delano as opposed to when the headquarters moved to La Paz, you know, in a fairly isolated place where Travis where is, you know, trying from the beginning to build a community.
0: Right, to, right. To,
2: to recreate, you know, the community they had in some ways. And um, so... You know, and, and and as long as they're I mean, he's he's brilliant at fighting wars and battles, and and not not certainly the first charismatic leader in history either to be able to create something and not necessarily be the person who is best equipped to run it and to struggle with that, you know, and not be not be able or willing to delegate, right? Um, but. So I don't, you know, I think, yeah, it was never a democracy. I mean, I think one of the, sort of one of the really interesting things that I write about in the biography and that I kind of, again, uncovered in the, the notes and the, the, all of the records, mainly in Wayne State, is that um, there was this purge in 1967. I mean, there are later purges that
0: right. people mm-hmm.
2: know about and they even get some attention and people are thrown out. But in 1967, there were a whole bunch of people thrown out. Including we saw this in the theater companies, which were who were really important to the movement, important to its visibility and fundraising and and, and organizing power. Um, But essentially, the sort of common denominator between all the people who were asked to leave in that summer is that they're too independent in some way, Um, and and so he, you know, kind of I think takes actions early on to make sure that there are not people voicing, you know, different opinions to make clear, kind of, it's, this is not a democracy, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I, I, you know, it's nasty in a lot of ways, and as long as you're fighting a war and there's a common enemy, right. I think that tension between democracy and not democracy the tension between movement and union which he also sort of talks about early on
0: mm-hmm. so all those
2: things get glossed over because it's like but we're fighting the teamsters or right. we're fighting the growers or we're fighting Richard Nixon and um, you know none of those differences really those are little differences and they don't matter that much um, it's later when they you know when they actually succeed and when there's a law and there's Contracts and union—you know—a real functioning labor union—that all of those things become um, much more problematic, and mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and and then you know ultimately the the issue that you alluded to, which is—is um, is this a union that's going to be run by farm workers
0: or not? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and uh, there's you know that when when you have a generation that has now come of age, you know, farm worker leadership that has come of age during, you know, 10, 15 years in working in the union, um, and kind of have been hearing this is going to be your union and they're like, okay, we're ready.
1: Right. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) No, (laughs) that was not to be.
1: And, you know, um... So, and this gets to the next point. I mean, kind of, you know, why that wasn't to be. uh, And this kind of pulls me back to, you know, the something that I was thinking about throughout the book. And and, um, it seems that Caesar and the union leadership are always trying to deal with is, you know, was this a union? You know, was this a real labor union? You know, or or like, you know, in the traditional sense, you know, fighting for, you know, bread and butter issues, you know, and and better working conditions and things like that. You know, or was it a movement? And it it seems, you know, at, at times, you know, that it was, uh, you know, it was driving towards one or the other, you know, um, and that, that Caesar himself kind of, you know, vacillated between the two. You know, at some point, it seems like he, he he spoke of, you know, the union as a union and that the issues they were striving for, like, you know, uh, elections in the field, you know, and, and representing the farm workers and things like that, you know, sitting in that organizing structure. Um to regulate the you know the 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 labor and the established fairness of you know the use of labor in the fields you know but then at other times, as you mentioned you know bring up La Paz and this desire to build community and build a broader poor people's movement, you know it 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 goes to a whole other direction you know which frustrates you know some of the leadership who want to focus you know on the contracts you know and focus on the elections and you know the real nitty gritty of you know running a union and representing the workers I mean so. Can you talk about that and maybe segue into it by, you know, maybe talking about, uh, you know, how did, you know, how did, so how did Caesar envision what he was doing? Again, was this a union? Was right. it a movement? And and how did sure. he define, you know, both sure. of those, you know, particularly movement? Like, what was his definition of a movement?
2: Sure. So, you know, when the grave strike begins in 65, he gives this interview that I think is, you know, very significant. It's to the SNCC, the newspaper, the student nonviolent coordinating committee. Um, and he says we have to find a cross between being a movement and a unit. You know, we have to create a new paradigm. Mm-hmm. And so he's very conscious of that from the start and that appeals to again in you know, sixty five, there are people who are coming out of the Mississippi summer in sixty four and who are coming out of the civil rights movement. And that's what I mean, that's what they embrace. And and people agree with that idea. That that's the appeal, is that this is not there's a lot of disdain for traditional labor unions right. um, from the start. So that movement spirit I think is, you know, enormously important to the success of Farmworker union. So there is a a degree to which they're linked. Um, Again, as long as they're fighting, that's not problematic for the most part. Um, You know, another sort of, I think, largely overlooked but important point is. The first big victory comes in 1970. It's sort of the Hollywood ending. It is mm-hmm. the ending of the Hollywood movie. They sign a contract. The, the, the grape boycott forces the grape growers to sign contracts with the, with the with PFW, and it's, you know, they, they've never, they never since had as many members as they had in July of 1970 when they signed those contracts with you know, 150 or grape growers. Um, the administration of those contracts over the next three years was abysmal. And everyone agrees to that, you know, I mean, everyone who was around, and people knew that at the time. It's even discussed at the meetings later on. I mean, Chavez denied it during the time that the problem was going on, but many years later acknowledged it. because he had no, so from the big, but the, the importance of that to me is that he had no interest in the administration of those contracts at that point in time. I mean, that was a sort of mundane, bureaucratic side of the union, and it did not interest him. He refers to it later on as non-missionary work. Right. right. So I think, you know, the union, but certainly the union was important to him in terms of the issues we've talked about, farm workers and dignity and, Decent wages and working conditions and bathrooms in the fields and all those sort kinds of things, and the sense that of you know of being treated as real and important respected workers um, but the union was not his ultimate goal he didn't see the union as the the end point here, and that's where it begins to sort of things begin to the train begins to go off the tracks a little bit
0: right, because,
2: right. you know he he's fine with having the union, but he doesn't. Want to when it when there becomes sort of a struggle over limited resources and what do you invest in trying to make the union actually work as a bureaucracy when you have members and the members are making demands and their contracts and they have to be negotiated and have to be administered and all those sorts of issues that he refers to as non-missionary work right um, and
1: hence the title so, Crusades huh is is that. That yeah. kind of comes from right
2: well <laughs> partly I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the the yeah, he you know, he says that what he likes to be is a nonviolent
0: Vietnam
2: kind of he right. love And um, you know, to this day there are people who are around then who say, Well, why couldn't couldn't he to let somebody else do all of that. You know, that would have been fine. There were people who could have made the union run. But then you get back to the CSO issue of like, well, if I let them do this,
0: right. mm-hmm. you know,
2: I don't trust them to really do it the way I would do it. And I'm, I'm losing control. And the other thing that, that I wanted to say that, you know, I, I didn't fully answer your you asked a question about the resources that went into the book and so on, and I talked about the tapes and about the state. I mean there are other great archives and great sources, and one of them is um, that in late in about nineteen sixty nine, I guess, a reporter from the Santa Rosa paper named Jacques Levy approached Chavez with this idea of doing an authorized biography. And Chavez agreed to it. And so Jacques Levy sort of essentially becomes a kind of aide-de-camp. He travels with Chavez. He has access to, you know, everyone, to Chavez's family, his parents, They, you know, and and because it's sort of going to be the authorized book, and they know they have control. I mean, first of all, they trust Jacques not to write anything that, you know, they wouldn't want written, and also they're going to have an opportunity to review it. So he just kind of goes to all these things with his tape recorder. He tapes the negotiation sessions with the growers in 1970. He drives Caesar around in the car and tapes him, um, and ultimately, and then he transcribes all his tapes. And um, ultimately, that collection ends up at Yale.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Where it's in the Beinecke Library, and it's just a great—I mean, he does write a book, but obviously the book uses sort of a fraction of the material, and those original interviews are really, um, really valuable also because they're so candid too. Right? You yeah, know, you can mention me. that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and one of the the reason I thought about that just now is because in you know in 1973 at the first convention, the founding convention of the United Farm Workers, Weezy is sitting with Chavez and first night and and Caesar Schindler says, you know, something about, you know, this now the seeds have been sown and says, I you know, I really hate it, but when you now, you know, from now on I'll have to get rid of all my best people because if you don't get rid of them then they will eventually come after you.
0: hmm
2: hmm And so you know. That that's that's where he is in terms of I mean that's the answer to the well why couldn't he let someone else do non missionary work? Because he doesn't trust them. Um
1: All right. And you and you mentioned, you know, I mean and what you get a sense of, you know, in, in reading you know, uh, this book is, you know, all that they were, you know, the union was up against, you know, I mean, this mm-hmm. is it, it like a multi-front war seemingly, right? There was right. never, I mean, you, you discussed Chavez's, you know, kind of attachment to like an enemy or a villain, but there is always, you know, so many to choose from, you know, I mean, there's, right. there is the growers, you know, which, oh, by the way, you do a wonderful job in, in both books, you know, of humanizing the growers, you know, they are not these, exactly. you know, right. easy, you know, monolithic type, you know, evil villains right they are these are right. people and to to some extent i mean they are confused by what they see caesar doing um right. however you know it's it's interesting to kind of you know delve into that you know which you don't have time to more but kind of you know wonder sometimes what they thought about you know, would they right. themselves want to be doing the work? You know, that in the fields right. I mean, or their children. But you know, you do a wonderful job there. Um, but that you know, there really was so much. I mean, you, you name it. I mean, there there is the funding issue. That's something he probably took from the CSO, right? I mean, the CSO always hurting for right. funds. Which right. this book is amazing. I, I was kind of amazed to find out, like, man, at some point though, you know, uh, well, the, the issue was, you know, how to use the funds. I mean, the 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 farm worker movement was able to really get a considerable amount a of money, you know, <laughs> I mean, from, yeah. you yeah. know, whether it was from, you know, government sources or, you know, private donors, you name it. I mean, they just had, yeah. they had access to money, you know, um, but still there's that challenge of resources, you know, and, and where, you know, the best, uh, where was the best place to, to delve that out. And so, you know, back to this question of, you know, union or movement, you know, I think it's something that, um, you know, that, uh it's. it wasn't an either or perhaps, you know, right to Caesar. I mean, he, it, it seems like this was the, this was the best time, you know, to start a movement, right in the sixties is also perhaps yeah. the worst time to start a union. And so he was, you know, perhaps it was starting something different, you know, I mean, it was something in between it wasn't either or it was, uh, you know, and the context was such to where he could experiment with, with that of doing something between the two. I don't know. Right, and the movement
2: the movement part was certainly, I mean, integral to success. And I I think you make a really good point about the odds that they were up against too, and that it is really important not to lose sight of that because there was that sense that whatever our you know, for a long time, whatever our differences are, you know, we we have this we're up against these enormous forces and we can't really waste energy sort of fighting internally. And so you know, there are a lot of people who stay around longer than they um, maybe in retrospect think they should have or, or want to do because they still kind of, they still believe in it. And then also people don't raise questions and don't really challenge Caesar on some decisions that he makes that are really key decisions later on because um You know, one thing is, well, he got us, and he plays on this. He plays on this very openly. It's like, I got us. You know, we got this far by following my lead, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in everybody, people are aware of just, you know, how far they have come and how remarkable and and the the sort of forces that they were able to overcome and, and triumph over. So it's like, all right, well, you know, he knows what he's doing. He got us here. Right. So even though there's queasiness about some of the things that that he's doing in the later years, people are like, you know, there, there's a reluctance to challenge him.
0: Gotcha, right.
2: um, And I think that that's another, you know, there's so many different people, people from different fields who read the book kind of come away thinking about different pieces of it and different ideas. Um, You know, how much, you know, how do you have democracy and still get things done? Um, Do you have to sacrifice your life, basically, to do something like this? Mm And that's a big, Mm -hmm. you know, both he and Fred Ross really believe that you have to be single-minded about this and nothing else matters. And um, that's a question. I think that's a question that organizers today and lots of people struggle with, you know, of like, well, what... Can, can you succeed in whatever you're being passionate about in terms of your career and still have a life, or, right, or not? Yeah,
0: of course, right.
2: Uh, so there's lots of pieces of that I think are kind of you know the people people seize on depending on what their own life experience is.
1: No, that's so true. It's um, uh, you know it's definitely a. You know, a a book that you know deserves to be read and and even more than once. Like I said, I was telling you earlier before, you know, just reading it the second time. You know, for me, kind of, you know, just opened my eyes to to other parts of, you know, again who Caesar is and you know the way this movement was going, the way it developed, and and the way everything ends. You know, because it's you know it's I think there's as it is with you know I think a lot of movement history or movement analyses. You know, um there's always this tendency to to kind of like look back very critically and, and and almost look at it as, you know, these movements were failures in the end. That's not something yeah. I, I, I think that you do overall. I think it's it's something, it's a tension that you're working out throughout the book. You know, how do you, uh, through both books, that is, you know, how, how do we really assess this fairly? How do we assess this movement? How right. do we assess this person? And I think one of the, the great ways, the beautiful way you do this is by, you know uh you know and and I think both books kind of close it with like what happened to the people involved in this movement, you know, and mm-hmm. what was their you know what did it inspire them to do, what is the legacy right. you know um that their their participation you know in the movement how did that affect them later on and and so it definitely it's it's something that deserves to be read so so you know people can come to their conclusions as to what that that legacy is you know and right. and then and take lessons from it you know. Um because as you mentioned you know these these issues are are definitely not gone you know they' are definitely ones that are struggling no. with it's one thing that I love about teaching history and and the classes that i'm you know uh that I'm lucky to be a part of you know is is to you know promote civic engagement to to promote you know uh you know democratic participation and and good citizenship you know as far as at least being involved you know not defining it. In any strict way, but you know, getting involved, you know, being aware uh, of these issues, you know, we are super short, and I appreciate all your time. Um, I did want to close on two quick questions, you know, um, sure. if you don't mind. The first one is um, having become, you know, having spent—I don't know what has it been, like you know, a decade or more of your life now. Right? now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Writing about the union, the, the Farm Workers union, and, and the movement, and and Cesar Chavez. Is there something that you would like to see written about the farm workers movement or Cesar Chavez?
2: Wow, uh, I mean, there are certainly more books that could, should be written. Um, there's There are questions about the Filipinos. You know, I know there are people who are working on books actually about the role of the Filipinos in the movement, the role right. of Arabs in the movement, the different ethnic groups. Uh, you know, I think that's something that I sort of touch on, that growers played ethnic groups against one another.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, I think there's more that could be written about the growers um, uh, and their response and sort of how that varied. Um, I don't, you know, I think there's probably a lot that could be done and there's probably things that I'm not even thinking of or <laughs> I would have tried to do them. But, um, uh, you know, someone someday will write a biography of Dolores Huerta.
0: Right, yeah, uh, mm-hmm
2: that gets i get asked about that a lot i think in general the role of women in the farm worker movement right. is a very complicated one is mm-hmm. a good story, you know is a is a, an important piece of it too that hasn't been done so i think there's lots of different um different points that could be looked at
1: well you're right and i think you know, you hit the it on there to be you know yeah. And, and there's, right. I mean, just, I think, and, you know, I know there's some of that work is, like you said, there's, it's, it's in its early stages, you know, and, right. and so definitely, you know, those interested in, uh, the farm worker movement Cesar Chavez definitely, you know, keep your eye out. Cause but I, I know there is, you know, uh, work being done on assessing, you know, the role of women in the movement of, you know, the various, you know, ethnicities that were involved in, and all of that, you know, so definitely, um, yeah you know, I mean,
2: those sort of tensions. I think there's more that can be done about race too. Um, you know, the the sort of complicated dynamics of that and and um I there's a lot. I I did, I think there's a lot that can be done about it as a movement and as a labor union um and and what it you know, what would it take? I mean, this is not directly in terms of the UFW um uh, history, but um I think it would be interesting to look at what it would take to organize today. I think that the off getting a little bit far afield from your question, but um, looking at the coalition of Amacly workers in Florida, who are doing the, by far the best sort of organizing today and the most effective farm worker organizing, mm-hmm. and who have made a deliberate decision not to be a labor union, mm-hmm. um, I think that's kind of an interesting case study too. Although it's an it's an offshoot, so um, but in terms of the history itself, you know, there's I mean, there's just so much more material there that I'm sure there are great. Untold pieces of the history that are still waiting to be um, uncovered.
1: Right. And that seems, at least with my, my limited experience thus far, you know, in, in, in writing, just, uh, you know, sometimes, oftentimes completing the project, you know, leaves you with, you know, a number of questions, you know, sometimes even more than the ones you started out with, and you're able to answer some, right. you know, but then there's, there's so many different directions it could go. And, and I definitely think you're right, there's, there is so much more that, that is out there. And it'll be exciting to see, you know, what comes and and it's definitely been, you know, great. It seems like since you know, this book I mean well not this book, but Union of the Dreams came out. There's been a you know, flood of uh not not so yeah. much flood, I'm sorry, but you know, a revised interest, you know, and uh, a number of books have been coming out and uh and they've been about either Chavez or, you know, the, the Farm Worker movement itself by, you know, academics or, you know, union participants or j- participants in journalists like yourself and 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 so there's definitely seems that there's uh you know, perhaps I think you're right, you know, there's enough distance now right, to where yeah, people I, are, I are more there's willing to talk.
0: There's that
1: it's, right. Yeah, I mean, because that's what this a lot of this work requires, right? It requires people talking, uh, you know, being open to interviews and, and uh, you know, sharing their stories, you know, and and that's what produces, uh, uh, you know, the work that, that you've been, um, you know, key in, in bringing forth and I think what will come of, you know, the next stage, you know, or, or, or wave of, of, you know, literature on Chavez and the movement. All right well, and then our 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 traditional closing question on the new books network uh, is what are you working on now um, or what are well, you doing now? I, I don't expect you to be writing uh, out a book but <laughs> I
2: am not, yeah I mean I have a couple small projects that I'm working on that are some that are actually a little bit farm worker related still um, and uh, um, I'm working on a um, a project with a really talented photographer who documented the sort of first wave of elections in nineteen seventy five and the organizing around that and we're sort of working on putting together a website that'll be a place where people can see the pictures and also contribute their own stories um, so and that's a, that's still farm worker related I guess and um, I'm doing a lot of talking about the book and about Javas lately also sort of that's going to... Um, there's a, it's the 50th anniversary this fall of the beginning of the strike, so there are a number of events and, and, and panel discussions and things like that. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a chance to call attention to, for me to, you know, a couple of things. One, the conditions in the fields today and what right. situation still is for farm workers so that people don't make sure that people are not, who are still lulled into a sense? People who do care about it are not lulled into a sense that, well, we, you know, we boycotted grapes and we solved all those problems. Um, so I think that that's important in terms of the the president, and even more in some ways in terms of my work. I guess that sense of the importance and the relevance today of Chavez's lessons at a time when progressive movement and the labor movement in particular are so under attack and there Mm -hmm. is a lot of soul searching going on within a lot of labor unions today of where do we go and what do we do because what we're doing now isn't working. And whether they assess, however they assess the blame for those failures, whether they're Doing it externally or internally or some combination, I think there's an increasingly a recognition that what has kind of become the model for even the most successful labor unions, which is to rely to a large extent on the political system for support, both in terms of favorable legislation and political support and so forth, um, uh, you know that that's not working anymore, and it's not going to work. And so how do we organize and how do we do things for working people? And that's where, you know, the lessons of the legacy of Chavez I think are of you know, enormous relevance because the UFW was able to achieve its greatest successes when Ronald Reagan was the governor of California and Richard Nixon was the president. And there certainly was mm-hmm. not a favorable political climate by any stretch of the imagination. And and so that that sort of ability to organize people and to achieve success um, in a climate of hostility, and to do what Chavez referred to as organizational jujitsu, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is using the strength of their your opponent against them, um, you know, has enormous relevance today. I think for anybody who is interested in progressive causes, the immigrant rights movement uses their strategies and so forth. So, so I think that you know a lot. I mean, I'm doing a lot of talking in different places because a lot of these issues, I think, are really relevant, and and because um, you know, I do want people to know who Cesar Chavez was and what he did and that he was something more than a, a name on a school and a street and all those kinds of things. And so finding kind of ways to um, to disseminate that information to different audiences to in schools and adults as well um, is kind of a sort of, I think will continue to take some of my time even though I'm not doing active research or writing on it right now. Um, and then I'm kind of poking around on some new ideas that will
1: me away from farm workers. I think gotcha gotcha well exciting well, uh, well stay tuned we'll be looking forward to see what, what comes next and you know we uh, certainly pretty appreciate your time Miriam and um, uh, so far, listeners again this is we've been speaking with uh, Miriam Powell author of the Crusades of Cesar Chavez definitely recommend that you go out and get the book and take a read and, and share it with others and talk about it thanks again Miriam for your time
2: thank you so much for having me